This is the Namine Solar Light Company podcast, Solutions for Climate Revolution. My name is Francesca and my guest today is Ralph Benker. Ralph is a distributor of innovation and business transformation expert and partner of, of First Friday, a consulting change management and training business. You yourself specialize in digital transformation strategy, portfolio structuring and mobilization, designing target operation models, aligning leadership teams so they can build momentum towards their desired goals and you put people at the heart of everything you do. You are also the host of the Bleeding Edge podcast where you discuss the stories behind the people bringing innovation technologies to the world and how these ideas can be adopted at scale into mainstream. I had the honor of being on your show to talk about the Namine Solar Light Company, SM100 Solar Light, that the Solutions for Climate Revolution is centered around to celebrate Earth Day last week. It was amazing to catch you, Ralph. Could you explain, Ralph, what the bleeding edge is? Oh, thank you so much, Francesca. That's a very kind introduction. The bleeding edge, it's many things. It's many things to many people. In fact, uh, I'm still discovering new definitions that people have for the concept of the bleeding edge and even as the show uh, evolves uh, people are bringing new aspects to it so in some ways it's it's kind of uh, exactly that it's difficult to describe the bleeding edge is where innovation happens I describe it as where the madmen and, uh, and, and and the losers and the winners of the world are made so uh, you know it's uh, the point of human evolution and uh, the, the reason why the bleeding edge is something that I feel deeply passionate about is because it's where the solutions um, but also the non-solutions lie and as a, um, as a species, as humanity, we need to make decisions every day about which technologies, which concepts, which ways of being uh, we integrate and, and ultimately make mainstream. Not all of them succeed but some do and they become part of our very culture, our very way of life. And so I'm interested in this concept of that transition between ideas, innovation, practice, learning, integration, and then whether they scale or not. And uh, the reason this is potentially urgent is we have a degree of innovation that probably outstrips anything we've ever seen. Uh, the reason for that is we have an amplified effect with a layering of technology. And so, that has um, driven uh, a, a complexity, but also a sophistication of, of capability that actually allows businesses to operate in a fundamentally different way and deliver value in a fundamentally different way. And so the bleeding edge is about discovering those opportunities. And you mentioned that uh, you know, my role is a distributor of innovation, and that's really what I'm doing. I'm exposing those stories of some of the most incredible innovations in really obscure areas. So, um, you know, some of the things might not be things that you're thinking about. Um, it might be the bleeding edge of water or air. The fundamentals of it uh, are very exciting. Just absolutely fascinating. I have a, a little bit of, of business background from my previous role. Um, does the valley of death come into the bleeding edge? Is, is that does that phrase ring a bell? It's where that kind of dip between from when a project becomes an idea at technology readiness level one and then to get to technology readiness level nine where it's kind of ready to go. It has to overcome this, this kind of valley of whether it makes it to the mainstream. Does that fit within the bleeding edge? Is that or am I just talking? Well, absolutely. You know, I think this is part of the, the gravity that uh, holds great ideas as secrets. 
Um, and, uh, and so uh, the trough of disillusionment is, is one of those that we talk about in the tech sense as well. So you kind of get the hype cycle. It's one of these things that Gartner does very well with their hype cycle model. And it, it shows a model of where different technologies are in the adoption. And part of it's the trough of disillusionment, which is kind of a bit of a parallel for the value of death. The value of death is something that in a change or transformation context becomes very relevant because it's typically the part of the process where you've set out on your change journey, lots of excitement, lots of announcements, hey, we're gonna do this great thing. And you set off on the journey and then you start encountering obstacles. And um, I think as Mike Tyson says, everybody's got a plan until they get a smack in the face. And, uh, and so suddenly things become difficult and those barriers wear people down and flow stops. And when that happens, you are entering into the valley of death because if you can't get momentum back into the process, uh, it actually stalls and stalled initiatives tend to be very difficult to restart. Um, and there are a variety of reasons why things, you know, go through the valley of death, but it's always a dangerous period and, uh, uh, and you need strong leadership and people that actually are comfortable with a degree of ambiguity to lead you through that, knowing that the team has the capability to get to the answer, even though you might not have the answer. Wow, there's, there's so much incredible knowledge in your brain. I, think, I feel like every oil and gas company needs to be hiring you at this point to, to work through the transformation that they're going through. If you, were to, if you were to, if an oil and gas company was smart enough to give you a call out, what would you, how would you help them in, in this transition that they're going through at the moment? Obviously they're, sorry, I shouldn't say obviously, but they're, they're, their stocks are falling, the demand is low, how could you, would this be something in your area that you could work towards? Is there? Well, absolutely. I spend a lot of time really innovating at the level of industry. And, uh, and if we just kind of take it to a part of oil and gas, let's just talk about the forecourts for a moment, because it's the part that a lot of people see. It's the kind of consumer facing arm, if you like, of oil and gas. It's where they distribute their product, which is, which is you know, petrol or diesel in most cases. And, uh, and to a small degree, you'll be getting LPG gas from your local BP or Shell station. And, um, and so uh, their big challenge now is to really think about what does a forecourt look like in the context of a widely electrified uh, you know, transportation network. And looking at that not only from the point of view of an end state of 100% electric vehicles, uh, but also through the transition state. So while we still have petrol and, uh, and, and diesel on the roads. And so some of the things that they have to kind of consider is that uh, people really still don't believe that a electric vehicle can travel the full distance. And so it limits them. And that trust is a major limitation and so we, we know this we know this has been holding the electric vehicle back uh, batteries you know have just not been at the uh, level to provide the range and so they've got an important role to play but of course then they kind of think about you know we could provide fast charging but of course if battery technology uh, really starts to accelerate so there's uh, you know lots of innovation in this space some interesting new glass brick technology that is 
apparently got an enormous capacity and this would really double the range. So they, they have to think if those new technologies come in, you know, what, what service do they provide in that context? How do they stay relevant to the consumer? This is the problem that everybody has. And so I think for the, the, um, the oil, the gas, and the companies that are running the forecourts, they have got to figure out what their reason for being is. Transportation is here to stay. You know, uh, despite the lockdown and the limited transport right now, we have to move goods. Uh, people will return to mass movement again. And so when, uh, you know, when and if that shift comes to electrification, uh, that's the thing that they have to figure out. So fast charging, entertainment, even more food courts, something that's more authentic, hotels, places where people can take breaks. Uh, you know, these are all things that we've, we've seen um, some innovation in, certainly in the UK. And, uh, and I think that's set to continue. Um, but they don't know what the answer is because it's not an easy answer. And so when I help big corporates, uh, then we basically set on a plan to talk to consumers. We start doing multiple future scenarios. We start looking at, uh, say, four possible future scenarios of what might happen. So short-range electric vehicles, long-range electric vehicles, hovercraft, uh, you know, or we start moving towards... Um, the dematerialization that we all saw in, in Star Trek. So, you know, when you have each of those four scenarios, uh, what are the trigger points that show you that, you know, any one of those is starting to manifest? So these are part of long-term planning. And then when you find those trigger points, you say, okay, well, we understand how that strategy is now going to evolve because we see the market is moving towards this state. Therefore, we need a business that looks like this. And, uh, and a lot of big organizations, they will have strategies in place that will allow them to you know, operate under any circumstances. So Target in the US, a massive retailer, has said, look guys, you know, we are still operating and they have experienced huge gains. They're one of the few retailers that have made you know, uh, a good turnover during this time. And so businesses that are ready for multiple scenarios, and understand the events that start to tell, give them the signs of what the future will hold. Uh, and then they can initiate their thinking and their plan that's suitable for that scenario. So, you know, those are the types of things that I would spend my time helping oil and gas companies doing to kind of look at those four scenarios that each go through a stage of consumer development and ultimately what their response is in each of those stages for each of those scenarios. Amazing. So this is a point in time now where oil and gas companies are really going to have to start listening to what people want in, in this new world that we're going to we're going to hopefully be able to start living after after COVID-19. How. If when I was listening to one of your podcasts um, last week, uh, one of your guests, forgive me, I can't remember his name. He explained the bleeding edge to me, a simpleton who doesn't understand all your incredible, amazing business terminology could understand. He said there were sort of three stages. One is hitting the ceiling of our existing knowledge, getting in a network of experts coming together, and then creating new knowledge, new tools to address the problem that caused us to hit the ceiling in the first place. How does this work for global warming and oil companies, Ralph? Because I would argue that we already have all the technology we need to solve our myriad of climate 
related crises. The challenge is getting the solutions to the mainstream and at scale, I believe, which fits in, I guess, with the bleeding edge. But could you sort of shed a bit of insight and your expertise on, on, on that and how you feel with the existing technologies that we've had, the alternatives to solar, so for the alternatives such as solar, wind, ground source heat pumps, air source heat pumps, those types of technologies, because they've been on the back burner for such a long time and they haven't reached the mainstream how will how do we get them to the mainstream is it the job of oil and gas companies to integrate with them do we need to sign petitions what could you what are your thoughts here mm, it probably needs all of the things you said um I, I think it's terribly complex and it's just got that little bit more complex because you know michael moore came out with his uh his, his new movie you, you must have seen that uh, release i don't know if you've watched it yet um, but definitely, definitely have a look at that uh, because it's very controversial and it really calls out um, the, uh, you know, the coal at the core of solar. And he talks through, the, everybody thinks that solar panels are built from, uh, from silica, from, from sand, but of course it comes from high quality, high grade quartz that is mined the entire mountains are blown up to get the stuff out. And then they basically match it pound for pound with coal and they heat it up to some ridiculous temperatures. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's hugely intensive. Um, in terms of coal usage so it's kind of a little bit counterproductive <laughs> in some ways I haven't actually looked at the full lifetime kind of carbon investment and I think this is always the thing you know we've got to think systemically so let me just say that to to answer your question uh, very quickly is while it's complex um, really the the quality of our thinking needs to improve in order to drive the quality of our solutions. And that's really what Donish Mishra was getting at. I think you were talking about the episode with Donish. And one of the ways that you improve the quality of your thinking is uh, you improve the quality of your network. So Donish maintains that the best network wins, the best team wins. And he established this in his thesis, uh, looking at 10 years of Formula One data. And he mapped out every single relationship in Formula One and he found that the team that won was the most, the best networked team. And, uh, and so that was, you know, an incredible telltale sign of success and performance. And so what we know is that the oil and gas companies and really anybody that is involved in this need to improve the quality of thinking because, uh, you know, petitions, I mean, that's, petitions are a symptom of bad quality thinking the fact that you have to write a petition to say hey guys here's an important idea or maybe the idea is crap you know um and so uh but of course you're convinced just like the flat earthers were convinced and maybe still are convinced you know for quite some time that we're living on a piece of paper and mm -hmm. uh, well at least something resembling a piece of paper so uh it, it, you know people get very vested in in their way of thinking and a strong network is a way to overcome um, any kind of uh, myopic view about what the potential can be so I think that's a big part of this and then really uh, you know if you if you are talking about um, engaging with consumers and what they want well I think consumers need to be clear on what they want 
um, consumers haven't really voted for clean air. You know, it's not, and it's a very, again, we're being charged for our air. So we're being taxed on air. And so you look at the whole carbon movement and you go, gosh, what the hell is this about? You know, is this just another money-making scheme? Do I really need this? Um, but what I want is good, clean quality air, not for somebody to buy carbon credits so that they can keep pumping out loads of pollution. I mean, you know, I get the scheme, but equally, on the other hand, um, what we need to really be doing is leaning into uh, emissions and pollution. Uh, I'm not a big kind of f fan of the climate change uh, agenda per se, so I don't go there because I don't mind climate change. Climate change has to happen. It has always happened. Um, I don't want to cause climate change. And so if we are causing climate change, and that's an emissions and a pollution agenda, not a climate change agenda. And I think, you know, it takes us one step away from the problem. Uh, it's, it's a personal view. Uh, it's not shared by, by, by many people. I might add it's somewhat controversial. Uh, but for me, I like to zoom in on the problem. And right now, the problem is that we have huge emissions. Uh, we have huge pollutants and we have overconsumption and uh, we have a poor distribution of energy and we have um, a renewable structure that is enabled by fossil fuel and isn't you know always proving to be sustainable um, and so the full life cycle of these things we're only just getting to grips with but it's important to experiment and so I think the point here is is we can only find the right solution if we experiment and so what I want to be seeing from oil and gas is that experimentation and uh, and taking some accountability for finding a new way but also not dressing it up actually looking at the full impact of any one of these solutions and um, it's the kind of cradle to grave approach i spend a lot of my time uh, you know we spoke about innovating at the level of industry but really uh, what's um, uh, a key thing is if you take a provider like Lego, Lego consumes more oil than any other toy maker on the planet because their product is a plastic brick and that plastic brick is made out of a petroleum byproduct. And, um, and so, you know, what are we going to do? Here's a household name. We all grew up with, with this. We want to see Lego disappear. No. Um, but you know, it's not a great product. And so we have to find a different way. Um, uh, but we need to back that and, and we need to back clean air. We need to back, uh, more use of, um, organic packaging material. And, uh, but equally we need to make sure that that's sustainable. So one product that we're involved in trying to be, you know, really help scale is a straw and this straw is made from a cocoa leaf. What's amazing about it is that obviously it's a, a leaf that we you know, extract from the tree. An entire village in India typically is involved in this farming. So it's a great uh, endeavor. It's a sustainable job for them. It's uh, quite manual to harvest the leaves and then they have to prepare them and then they roll them into these straws and there's an organic glue that's used. And it's all been certified and we are now able to uh, import that certainly into, into Europe. Um, and, um, and, and so great it's, on the face of it, it sounds like a fantastic solution. And then we take it to, to the market and they want a million straws for the first order. And then every month 
And then we go and we look at it and we realize that we would have deforested, you know, entire forests worth. And so suddenly the idea isn't sustainable at, at scale. Um, we don't push the button on it and say, oh, we have to do it. And we just, you know, rape those forests and be done with it. Um, no, we, we say, okay, that's not the solution. Let's look at the next product. Um, it, that's only a small part of the solution. And maybe the solution is that it is actually many things that build and add on. Um, because somewhere through that, there'll be the golden thread that really works. That is, that is low on carbon, that is low on pollution, high on energy output. Um, and, uh, and, you know, not putting us at risk because again, kind of look at it, atomic energy and it's, oh, it's phenomenal. It's so appealing, but wow, the risks are insane when things go wrong. So, uh, I think experimentation and collaboration and creating intense networks, um, that are enabled around a common purpose and an agenda that is led through a voice and that voice is informed. Um, and it's informed with um, a fact from a fact base that I think almost doesn't exist. Nobody trusts industry bodies to represent the consumer. Um, so to be honest, I, I think we are dead in the water with everything I've said because it all falls down on trust. Uh, the lobbying groups don't have humanity and the, na the natural world uh, in their interests, they have the interest, uh, a uh, financial outcome. And until we ba balance ecology and economy, we will always be on the wrong side of, um, of, 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 of life, frankly, um, because clearly, you know, we, we, we've had a, we're in the sixth mass extinction, <laughs> whether we'd be here or not, we were still making fires and wandering, uh, through the Savannah. I don't know, but, um, you know, such is the nature of climate change. We have had climate catastrophe in human history many times. It's the reason we walked out of Africa. And, uh, and so that motivation has uh, played out in front of humanity many times. Here is another one, yet we may be implicated in its making. So um, friends, a friend of mine has great faith in humanity. He says, you know, we will absolutely find the solution. Um, but I think the problem is we're looking for technology for solution. And that's not the answer. Um, that's just the tool. Now we've innovated some fantastic stuff, which is very necessary for the next phase. But the true innovation now lies in the sophistication and maturity of the individuals that make up more sophisticated and mature networks. And that's the secret to actually getting a system, so a humanity that is aligned against a common outcome. So an amazing byproduct of the COVID-19 crisis is people seem to feel like they are connected in some sense and um, and they likely are they have a common a common a common battle um, and that has always been where humanity tends to you know be at its best where we community becomes important friends and family become important our connections become stronger and so we uh, are motivated by the experience of our own mortality.
and uh, and so the network in in the large is suddenly very strong, which is why everybody's going, "Wow, is this the moment that we can break the gravity and truly have a voice um, that's beyond any petition because it's we want a better world." But I'm not sure we've described what that better world is. Everybody talks about sustainability, and actually, I'm not entirely sure what it is. You know, until we get to we are doing these specific things to change the world, like we're going to stay at home for the next six weeks, as my family has um, in the lockdown in Spain. You know, that's a very specific thing that's had a very big impact on the world. So if we can start doing that kind of intervention, um, which we're clearly capable of because we've just lived through it. So we now know we can change the world, but it's just down to the intrinsic motivation. And suddenly we've experienced it. So there's a level of awareness and awakening. We're connected. So the network is stronger. We've kind of got this motivation. And unless we can be clear about what it is we want to move towards, I feel like we're very clear about the things we don't want, but we're not very clear about the things we do want. Um, so let's move forward and, uh, and, and define those. And I think if the oil and gas companies, can set about saying, let's experiment, let's bring collaboration into the core here because this is a species play, not a brand play. And um, a lot of my guests are talking about a kind of a planetary, you know, level, um, a, planet, a planetary level plan, a planetary level view. So many of them have started thinking at that level. They've started to understand uh, systems at the level, at the scale of the planet. And, um, and that's quite powerful when we have, you know, a bleeding edge cohort of leaders and innovators starting to enter that understanding of the complexity of systems because uh, that's the, the opportunity we have to really start to layer in all this great new technology to take chunks out um, of our current ways uh, at each level of our process. You know, what we call a target operating model um, to use a bit of consulting speak, but it's really a model for, you know, how we operate and it gives us the address of where we can apply solutions and technology. So we know how to do it. We know how to layer all of the stuff in. We just need the, the leadership sophistication to network organizations, to network into their suppliers, to network into the consumer systems. And, uh, and that's when we will get richer solutions. So maybe that's quite a, a sophisticated, uh, I don't know, an, an in-depth response to your question. I hope, I hope it covered it. I'm fascinated just listening to all that. I think I agree with you about actually the terminology around climate change. Like when we talk about it, we should be more specific and we should say human-induced climate change or human-induced global warming. I think that is definitely a, a point that, that should be made when I've been chatting to people over the years. They, they have exactly the same argument. They say, well, climate change has always happened. And I say, absolutely, 100% agree with you. So I think that's such an important point to make and I, I do agree with you and I think this this idea around trust and our, our lack of trust in institutions our lack of trust in our leaders but their pivotal their, their pivotal kind of 
involvement in us in progressing us forward in these planetary scale plans how can and and with the individual sort of taking every responsibility that they possibly can in their lives to reduce their energy waste reduce their resource waste empower their purchasing and to do all the good things invest in all the, the great kind of projects like the solutions for climate revolution to, to, un, to yeah undo global warming and reverse inequality those kind of things how how can we what do we do as individuals what is the how do we get past this 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 covid19 lockdown and continue to make progress in reducing emissions because it's i totally agree with you it's 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 an it's a pollution problem it's an air quality problem and i'm actually a, a fan i do like the idea of, of carbon taxing i think or carbon credits i'm not quite sure of the exact terminology but the largest polluters should pay the most amount of money and that money should in taxes and that money should then be distributed throughout the people who who use the services i think that's a great incentive to get big corporations and large businesses to, to reduce their consumption because as you said all these these industries and big companies are they're very profit motivated but i can see that that's not something that that what do you think what would you is do you have a, an alternative to to asking companies who are large polluters to pay more ta tax and distributing the wealth that way what do you see as there being an alternative there because it's uh, in kind of you've stumped me completely i'm so fascinated with everything that you've said but i i feel like i've I feel like I've been a bit derailed. I don't really know. Well, let's answer yeah. your first question. You asked, you know, what should an individual do? And I think yeah. that's simple. Take accountability and ownership. Yeah, that's you know, massive, yeah. massive accountability and ownership. Start your list. This is what I'm changing and I'm doing. Yeah. And, and I'm going to monitor it and make sure that actually I'm, that I'm actually doing the right thing. You know, um, it took us 20 years to stop using lead in our fuel. It was a bad idea, but we were invested in it. <laughs> 20 years of one, you know, branded mad scientist going, guys, this is not a good idea. This, this is poisoning us, you know. So, so we have to kind of bear in mind, it takes us a bit of time. We, we're, we're not that responsive. And, uh, and these things just need to play out. But an individual needs to take accountability and ownership. I just eat less meat. I... Uh, I, I drink a variety of, um, of, of milks and I try not to kind of um, drink anything that is coming from, let's say, a soya plantation that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to actually uh, find products that, are, that are, are kind to the environment and sometimes I get it wrong. Mm. But then I find out, oh, you got it wrong, you know, you don't, you don't want any of that palm oil stuff anymore. Uh, whale fat was bad. And then we go there and forget whale fat. We use palm oil. Yeah, we don't kill the whales. Oh, God, no, the palms, palm oil is terrible. Okay, we'll move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we, we, we just have to be a little bit relaxed. This is a big experiment. But we need to just learn a little bit faster. And I think, you know, if we take a, a view of balancing economy and ecology, we'll start to make better decisions. And things like mass plantations of palm forests won't become as big a, a problem so so just take accountability um mm -hmm. you know just eat less meat don't put sugar in your tea yeah. 
you know, are, I've stopped. I've, I've just stopped taking sugar in my drinks. These are all, it's, it's great to hear you say that because it's, it's, it's power back to the people and it's, it's, yeah, it's everybody's choice matters. And take a fork, take a fork with you in your bag. And when you go to Pret to go and buy your lunch, you know what, don't pick up their plastic fork. Don't take the straw. Mm. Unless it's one of your amazing straws. <laughs> but they're sustainably produced. Obviously. Well, you know, if it's a plastic straw, I, I mean, I don't take it. So no, sure. all choices that we can make, and you can visualize that turtle that now doesn't have a straw stuck in his nostril, whatever it is, <laughs> you know, which is... A <laughs> Brutal <laughs> image. These are all, 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 well, these are all of the images that, you know, we've, we've, we've kind of been played out in our the media and so we have to respond because it's, it's a reasonably urgent call um, but those are the choices we make on the ground every day and actually um, if you can take accountability that every time you put a spoon of sugar in that that's coming from a sugar plantation uh, that thing is slashed and burnt every year uh, it's a hugely polluting industry it's very energy intensive and it produces a product which, you know, actually is probably the number one uh, cause of modern health issues. And, uh, and so it's impact on the planet if we just stopped consuming sugar. And then, of course, we look at meat. Um, and I'm not a fan of, uh, you know, not eating meat. I, I, I quite enjoy it, but I equally cut down on meat because I think it's a, we, we did definitely overconsume. We overconsume calories on most days anyway. So you can just consume the calories you, calories you need to, to maintain your weight. And that's a, you know, it's a very simple thing to calculate. But we don't do that. We eat for pleasure. We think, wow, we eat for pleasure. But fuel is food. And, uh, and actually, in a world that has uh, such poorly distributed resources, if we can take accountability for consuming what we need, not what we want, and even that change is significant. So, uh, but it's, a, it's an educational process and I think um, we should just try to help people understand and inform them. Uh, but it's very difficult, Francesca. I'll give you another example and I really want to go and find this paper because it's a, an amazing paper. A journalist, um, well, he was a, um, in fact, he was a, uh, the, this chap was a physicist and um, he, he, he wrote about the activities at CERN and somehow became interested in food science and realized that uh, food science was almost non-existent in the industry. So the retailers that were putting all of our uh, foodstuffs together um, weren't really applying the level of investigation that science was capable of. And so he felt that that exposed consumers to problems because we were using products uh, that, uh, like Sudan, I think it was Sudan 5, uh, back in the 2000s, it was a food coloring and a, and a flavoring that we were using. Uh, Tesco had several hundred products that had Sudan 5 in it on their shelves, as did every other supermarket. And they found that this was severely carcinogenic. And so they pulled it. But, you know, we've had many of these types of uh, products, melamine in the, um, in the baby food, in 
China, so the, the baby powder, um, you know, many kids died, hundreds of children died because of a contamination, something they were putting in the baby powder. So this chap basically uh, went on a mission to try and bring the kind of standards that they have in, uh, in, 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 you know, uh, in, in physics um, uh, to food science. And one of the things he found is that of something like 20,000 papers that studied the relationship of salt and high blood pressure, that not one of them cited a direct link between salt and high blood pressure. Now, you know, obviously every single one of us believes that salt causes high blood pressure. Um, it's kind of myth and law. And, uh, and sometimes on YouTube, you see these uh, very sensational headings, you know, everything you know is wrong. Um, and, you know, some guru is going to set the world to right. And so you, you kind of go, oh, you know, whatever. But then you, you, you hear this guy tell of the story and of his investigation. And not only that, he then goes on to talk about uh, the way that um, the entire cancer research industry is funded around research that cancer is genetic. But what we understand is that actually cancer is a response to the environment. And all of the funding is that it's genetic. And if you, as a scientist, as a tenured professor, say otherwise, and you, know, you will know this yourself given your academic background, if you initiate a different line of inquiry, you lose your funding. Mm. And we're talking about 90% of the funding for cancer research basically being in the wrong area and looking at the wrong smoking gun. And, uh, and, and so there are very interesting case studies around this. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a genetic link between, uh, uh, you know, to cancer. There, there, there is predispositions. And, um, uh, and, and, there, and that, this is one of the things, you know, they've certainly found uh, correlations. But what we know is that it's driven through epigenetics as well. And epigenetics is the way that your genes choose to express themselves in relation to the environment. And so when there's benzene in the water, which, you know, people have done studies and they've extracted all of the water that they consume in a year from kind of public water. And then they've separated out everything that isn't actually water. And so you know, you come up with maybe a liter of benzene that you might consume that's in, in a year that's, you know, just, it's just there along with all the other things that you're consuming. Cause obviously uh, the water is recycled around seven times on average in certainly in, in London. Um, and, uh, and so um, we, we look at that and realize that if you, if your genes are, you know, if you are particularly poisoned as a result of that exposure to benzene, you're going to develop cancer. And uh, a lot of the evidence points to people that are living in, in, uh, in close proximity to a you know, electrical tower or to some type of uh, transmission tower 
um, you know, that those radio waves uh, do cause cancer. So we have really high numbers of cancer in the cells around uh, those types of devices. So we can see that there is correlation. Sometimes the uh, effect isn't always as clear and we can't say that correlation is proof, but um, we, we know that these things, our environment has an impact. And because we're looking at it purely as a predisposition because of your genes, we're actually not looking at the environmental impact. And one other important aspect of that environmental piece is that you know, it's your inner self, um, that kind of mind aspect that is probably the biggest impact from an environmental perspective. So the state of your conscious mind and uh, how well you treat yourself or persecute yourself also has a big impact on health. Um, and, uh, and that's actually been certainly one of the main things that we've been quite concerned about when we look at the stress response to everything that we're going through high stress actually compromises our immune system uh, we're very clear on this we understand the mechanisms for it and um, and so uh, because we're all very stressed for a variety of reasons um, you know we are really susceptible to illness and uh, and this kind of comes back to uh, the quality of our solutions when we're stressed uh, typically our frontal cortex is compromised um, you know we're activating parts of the brain that maybe uh, execute more on a pattern basis so certainly when we look at flight or fright uh, or freeze um, overwhelm anxiety these are the types of things that uh, certainly I experienced multiple times <laughs> Uh, in the day and the point is not that you don't experience them. the point is that you very quickly get back to productive wherever that is for you and, uh, and so um, our collaboration our networks they improve when we're able to get back to productive very quickly as an individual and as a group um, and so that creates agility that creates high performance um, but uh, I wanted to get back to the second part of your question now. And I, and I, and I can't remember what it was. I was just so one, interested listening sure. to you. <laughs> what, did I, what did I ask? Um, uh, anyway, it was... Um, uh, <laughs> it was a good question. I'm sure it was a good question. <laughs> That's a great answer. Um, so it's just fascinating to hear how your, your change and transformation business expertise and your, your distribution and innovation is is so it just transcends to so many facets of, of human existence because exactly like what you do at, at first friday you put people at the center of the things that you do and i think this is something that is it's exactly what you say it goes back to these networks the strength of these networks and and it's actually it's people that matter and it, it's when you put people together and you put them in an environment that is is prosperous is, is conducive to the human well-being happiness health love strength equality people are naturally going to thrive and they're naturally going to come up with the solutions and the innovations and the, the answers to some of the most crazy problems that we have right now and i think i just i think i find that so empowering i think it's just what yeah leaving people to their own devices is 
thing incredible things happen and i think it's 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 wonderful to to hear that you also think that it is it's people power and it's the individual and it's the accountability and it's it's the decisions that we make every single day that determine how how good the quality of air is that we breathe and that i think is is the fundamental the fundamental point of it i think it's one of the things i i've i've been saying for years is one of the things i'm trying to stop is for people who think oh i'll take action then i'll take action later oh it's not going to happen for ages we've got years left climate is it's just you don't to stop people from regretting that they could have done so much more when they had the opportunity and i think that that connection that you have through these this strengths of networks these these this collaboration of minds and people is 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 that that's what's going to take us down the road to to a world that is more fair more equal more more enjoyable for for more people the majority of people not a, not a small percentage and i yeah i'm what is your what's your bleeding edge technology what's your what's your favorite that you've come across so far that you feel is going to be a solution to to many of the world's problems do you have do you, can you count them on one hand or have you got a long list is there are there any that you can i see them everywhere i'm yeah. I'm, I'm quite um Got goggles for it. Excited by it. I mean, uh, for, remember, for me, they're not always only products. They're sometimes concepts and ways of thinking. So, uh, one of those, if I just give you an example of, of, of each, you know, there is a concept uh, called a deliberately developmental organi organization. And, uh, and these are concepts, they're kind of ways of being. So, the, uh, um, you know, management 3.0 um wanted to uh, really look after the employee and create well-being whereas deliberately developmental organizations want their employees to be rock stars and so it's the kind of organization that's going hey anything goes it doesn't matter what you do in this business you can do it as long as it's adding value and we've seen you know early stages of that um with um the, uh, the likes of Gore, um, M. Gore, a company you might never have heard of, but you've definitely worn their products, is the maker of Gore-Tex. Mm. And, uh, you know, since the 50s, he's been building hundreds of brands using innovation that came out of giving his employees the freedom to direct their innovation, to follow their passion and come back with products that they could engineer and that they could take to market and scale. And, uh, and they've done that very successfully. Facebook, Google, they've all done these types of things. So the free time for their engineers to go and innovate, you know, AdWords, Gmail, all of these things have come out of people basically being allowed to tinker and go, hmm, I think I've got an idea over here. And so we know that giving people the ability to self-direct is, you know, it, 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 this is beyond empowerment. Yeah, you know, empowerment is, it's old school. Yeah, um, I love it. Because we're, we're empowered to take humanity forward. We're empowered yeah. to balance ecology and economy. And I don't need you to tell me that that's my job because I'm a human. Mm. I'm born into that job. And I think, you know, there's a kind of a baseline acceptance that is part of something like a deliberately developmental organization. Um, where it really is saying that each employee 
is crew. So you can be passenger sitting at the back of the plane or you can be crew. You can be driving that thing to the destination. And most people in organisations are passengers. And, uh, and what we need to do is wake them up and they can be crew. And that's, again, you know, where maturity comes in of leadership because it's not about um, managing people anymore. Carrot and stick approach, that's kind of, you know, that's gone. And if you kind of align them around your values and your purpose and your reason for being and your mission to stay relevant, then, um, you know, either you need to think, rethink, rethink those things or hire new people. Um, but, uh, but that's really going to be the key. And we already have the kind of thinking that provides those constructs. And so if people are interested, they can take those models into their organization and, uh, and build their expertise over the years and take what works for them and, and leave what doesn't. I mean, these are not easy organizations to operate in. They're challenging. Uh, they, they stretch people to their max. And, uh, and I think, but the learning is, is, is very profound and it's very fast and it's very individualistic, yet the effects of it immediately benefit the network. It's really interesting to, to hear about how you're talking, sorry, I've just completely gone a blank what I was set, thinking. Um, the, <laughs> sorry, it's the, what was I thinking about? It was people, that was it, pass, being a passenger. It's not about empowering people, which is a word that I, I'm using in Solutions for Climate Revolution. It's about, would you say, facilitating people to be able to give them, to give their all, to reach their capacity, to, to reach their potential. It's about, so instead of the word empower, would it be like, would you, would you have to attribute a sentence to this or do you have a word in mind? Is it something that? Well, I, I kind of think of, you know, enablement. Mm, enablement. Um, and, uh, and that's really something that speaks to creating an environment for this to happen, providing the capability development for people to understand what it is, so a bit of training, providing enough framework uh, and, and muscle for somebody to organize it. So somebody has to be a catalyst. Somebody has to send out the meeting invite. Somebody has to write you know, a structure of this is what we want to cover. Some, somebody has to be the person to first stand up and say, we're going to do these 10 steps. And so I think when you put all of those things together, uh, you have enough to bring a group of people together and create a movement. And um, it's down to their intrinsic motivation. If they're not intrinsically motivated, then it's very difficult. Some of them can be convinced and they might just go along, but you really want to pick, you know, if you go to back to Dr. Donish Mishra, it's the 3% of the network that has 90% of the relationships. They drive the entire network of the organization. And that holds true whether you've got 100 people in your team, whether you've got 1,000 people in your team or 100,000 people. So what you want to do is you want to get those folks on board because they will help you to diffuse what's good and they will bring others on board. They will 
catch the next group that are kind of like, wow, what, are you, what you're doing sounds really interesting. It's the colleague that's next to you going, I've been listening to your podcasts and, you know, I, you know I'm, I really, I'm quite engaged with what's going on. I want to get involved. Here's my idea. And so that's the network and that organic collaboration that really drives um, a very powerful agenda. And so you want to create the environment. You want to give them some skills. This is what we're going to do. You want to give them some muscle. You want to give them some resource, some investment. Um, and you want to give them a mandate so that they can get a purpose. And that North Star is what they can all follow. And, uh, and people can get behind that. We're very good when we have a clear uh, outcome that we want to achieve. And if we're not so specific around how we need to get there, then we can unlock people's creativity to solve the problem based on what they have to hand. And that is often uh, the relationships, the networks that they can mobilize, the skills that they can utilize to get the job done. And that is typically efficient. So they will find the most efficient way based on the resources that they have. And typically, again, it will be a very organic alignment of the network to a goal. And when lots of people align around a goal, things tend to happen and you tend to get a result. It's, we call it momentum. And, uh, and that momentum, if steered, you know, to that North Star, uh, doesn't matter what barriers come in the way. It will go, well, we know what the purpose is. We know what we want to get. We know we've got the tools to navigate around and any barriers and maintain flow. And so uh, that's kind of where... Um, where we want to get organizations to. And so enablement, that's what it embodies for me. And if I love create that word. I'm going to have component. to attribute that to you in, in the Solutions for Climate Revolution guide. I think it's, um, you've sold it to me, to be honest with you, Ralph. I'm going to, yeah, first, first Friday is up there. It's going to be in there. I think that's just wonderful. I love this idea of, yeah, don't just, don't just empower your purchasing, enable your purchasing to, do the things that you want it to do. I think that that is that is super powerful. It's yeah, putting your putting your money where where your mouth and your values are, and I, I love that. And this idea that of yeah, we are all we all have the ability to be a passenger, but we actually all have the ability to be part of the crew. Is is I, I just I, I think that is just such a great perspective for for us all to take on board when we're facing these challenges it's actually like I could take a back seat I could continue doing the things that I've always done but actually in light of in light of a new situation because the world is always changing just like you say everything the change is the only constant con, con, the change is the only constant of the universe we've got to we've got to do stuff we, we adapt or we die and I think that is such a powerful message enablement I love that and it's I'm so inspired and yeah just oh it's just great to chat to you I, I love your perspective Ralph I've got a few questions uh, well just one question at the end that I'm asking everybody who does this podcast what gives you hope for the future and what still makes you feel hopeless oh I like that <laughs> awesome yeah hope for the future well I guess it, you know we're here today and uh and i think that gives me hope every moment i'm here it gives me hope i might be here the next moment yeah uh i come at the world from maybe a slightly different place because i look at a lot of disaster scenarios and there are 
you know, 10 highly likely uh, disaster scenarios that... Um, apocalypse now, you, I'm reading, I've read they're, they're, they're apocalyptic, cataclysmic style events. Mm. And you kind of look at them and go, wow, the likelihood of one of these things hitting humanity, you know, is, is pretty high. It has to happen, right? Because so so this, these are things like uh, asteroids or volcanoes, earthquakes, like, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Uh, solar events are mm. particularly interesting because in, uh, they're uh, reasonably frequent and quite quite damaging. But nonetheless, you, you look at this and actually every day is, is, is a gift for me. And uh, so I, I really approach life from that perspective. And I feel great hope as a result of that. I have a wonderful family and uh, my children are at an age where they are uh, developing and understanding their role in the world um and you know that's fascinating for me i i have great hope to see that um that, that they grow up and um and, and make their own place in the world whatever that might be i do feel hopeless at times but that's maybe more uh that i think there is just such a lack of awareness in uh, in most of humanity uh, there are you know very few people that actually have the role um, of thinking deeply and uh, and disseminating and this has been the way that you know our, certainly our modern uh, culture has evolved um, there seems to be this very uh, clear hierarchy if you follow spiral dynamics uh, which is a system that has charted the evolution or the the history of human thought of human values and since the dawn of of modern humanity and uh, the levels are very clear and all levels are still present in society and what we see is that we have tremendous capacity at the upper end for very complex and uh, you know, at planetary level thinking in terms of our understanding of the problems and the solutions. Uh, we also have at the other end of the scale, you know, tremendous ignorance and vested interests. And, um, and so, you know, th those are all things that have to be there. It's part of the human condition. So they're neither good nor bad. They just are. Uh, but the hopelessness, I, th I think, comes from the fact that actually hmm, there is maybe a reasonable level of, of urgency to respond so that our, our children and their children have, uh, you know, a future where we are at least somewhat capable in our environment. Um, I don't think it's possible to necessarily maintain the status quo, uh, but I do think it's important for us to continue to evolve our capability, both in a digital, but also, um, and this is going to sound strange, given I'm a digital transformation uh, consultant, uh, you know, in our, uh, our skills in an analog sense. So I feel deeply that our analog skills are just as important as the digital skills because digital actually is quite susceptible um, given some of the cataclysmic scenarios that uh, that we look at and uh, and so and that's because electrification and power and energy will be susceptible uh, you know the grid is not 
stable. Even if we don't look at cataclysmic events, um, things can happen in the electrical grid that could cause some severe outages. And we have another grid, which is called the internet, which you know, creates another point of failure, albeit with many redundancies in itself, it is a technology. Um, and the only one we have of its kind. And so in, there is an inherent risk at that level. So, uh, so that hopelessness probably comes from the fact that we have so many solutions, um, but we're just very slow to integrate because we're still very slow to develop, mature, um, to open up to the potential of many perspectives, to many rights. Um, and, uh, and that's something that I think is holding us back. And it's a pity because um, actually there are largely things that, you know, just waste our time. They're uh, beliefs that people are trying to hold true because it's their belief. And, uh, and I think the point is, uh, guys, you know, nearly 70% of the facts that we have uh, ever invented um, have now become defunct and have been superseded by some new fact and proven the old fact to be incorrect. Um, and that's kind of some, something coming from Stephen Fry. So that's a direct <laughs> quote from Stephen Fry. I believe that number to be true. Uh, and it's certainly something, you know, if I kind of look at where we've gone with butter and with eggs and with salt, these all things that we've said, horrendous. And then we go, no, they're actually, they're okay. And so um, the decay of, of facts uh, is fascinating. And we need to move at a pace we need to integrate at a pace and uh, my uh, my fear is we're not responsive enough so if i'm ever hopeless it's uh, it would be about that that's a beautiful beautiful way to put it i, I think that's just you rendered me speechless ralph and i'm going to cheat and i have one more question what are your thoughts on 5g good bad affecting people part of the coronavirus pandemic what do you what are your thoughts there being involved in, in digital tech? That is a, that's a, that is a cheat question. <laughs> I'm not, sorry, not sorry. Uh, look, uh, look, first of all, I, all I can say is I am absolutely not qualified to answer. Um, and, um, and, and I'm not sure that there are many people that are as yet qualified to answer, which is probably the problem. And uh, just like coronavirus, you know, there are so many things that we do know, but there's probably a lot more that we don't know. Mm. And I think the same is true for 5G. Um, I do love a good conspiracy theory myself, uh, mainly because I think it illustrates two things. One is our propensity to connect completely unrelated things uh, because we see some kind of pattern i think that's in a, an innate human <laughs> human capability and sometimes we're very right and sometimes it's terribly wrong we will imagine all kinds of relationships which is why conspiracy theories are so difficult um, but nonetheless this was an early one and i came across the first one as early as january and it was pretty compelling because they were talking about these hypoxic situations that people in Wuhan were finding themselves in and then they were also talking about the fact that the princess uh, boat which was um, sitting in Japan had, was the first boat that was actually kitted out with this 5G technology so Wuhan was the first city with 5G the princess boat was the first boat with 5G and you know clearly there was a, a lot of stuff going on 
uh, with coronavirus on both in, in, in that city and on that boat. And so uh, one of the things that I thought was fascinating from a technology point of view uh, is that the 5G technology is emitting 60 gigahertz, gigahertz. I believe. And so uh, what uh, one of the relationships of the hypoxic condition uh, that was proposed was that it that 60 gigahertz changes the way that uh, one of the uh, protons or neutrons are, are circling around um, the atom. And that means that the hemoglobin in the blood actually can't access the oxygen because it's disrupting the way that the oxygen molecule is behaving and the hemoglobin can't bind to it. Now, as I said, I'm not qualified to, to respond because uh, uh, I think you know, we, we, we have to be able to do some sustained tests. But that for me was probably the most compelling link, if you like. I can mm. see that there is a mechanism um, to cause hypoxia, and uh, of course, we're talking about millimeter wave technology. This is short range waves. Uh, there's a high degree of intensity because of the number of um, these uh, broadcast antenna that they have to distribute around the place. And of course, you know, we're talking about the same equivalent of microwave waves. You know, we, we, these things push frequencies out and frequencies has an effect. Um, mm -hmm. We just by and large don't experience that effect. Um, in a noticeable way. And so uh, for some people, um, they seem to be able to cite conditions as a result of Wi-Fi waves, as a result of um, 4G uh, and apparently 5G. But I think it's all very early and uh, um, I'm looking at it with great interest. Uh, what is unfortunate is, again, you know, it probably comes back to your uh, your point about uh, the uh, the big oil companies um, and and trust you know people don't trust the industry body um, Ofcom um, have you know they've said look we haven't tested it we don't know they globally um, the head of the equivalent of Ofcom has basically said that they don't know what the technology does so I think. Um, that has created a little bit of doubt. And so lots of conspiracy theories have resulted. Um, and so we'll have to see how it plays out. But, um, you know, on the one hand, it's the next level of, it's the next part, it's the next foundation of connectivity. And connectivity is a fundamental for us to Very continue important. to expand the network effect. Absolutely. And, um, and so on the whole, you know, connectivity is a good thing, Francesca. I can't say that it's bad, um, but I'm concerned that we have committed to a technology that we apparently have not yet considered in its entirety. And so we have a lot of unnecessary angst again being created um, at a very interesting time. And, um, and maybe it is nothing more than a pattern of coincidence uh, or maybe you know, it really is the 60 gigahertz disruption. Um, yeah. Right. No, it's just, it's a fascinating subject and you're so right. It's time will tell. And, you know, all we can do at the moment is do our best to be happy, healthy and strong and be hopeful. Yeah. Send love, kindness and happiness to all the people in all the world and, yeah, do the best to 
enable our purchasing. So we're making decisions that are in line with our values and we are voting for the future that we all want, know and deserve for all life on earth. Ralph, you've taken everything that I know in my whole world perspective, you've scrambled it all up and you've rebuilt this new lens that I'm looking through the world in and it's it's amazing. Your worldview, your knowledge, your expertise is is just so I have no words. It's just wonderful to listen to you and, and to hear you speak. And I can't thank you enough for, for being on the Solutions for Climate Revolution and for promoting the SM100 on the bleeding edge as well. It was just wonderful to always chat to you and super excited for episode two, the bleeding edge. Well, we're definitely going to do that. I think, uh, what did you say? Is it the SM100? SM, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Solar. Um, can't remember the acronym it's so silly i always just put sm100 yeah <laughs> you made some little all my knowledge go out of my brain <laughs> <laughs> well remember everything you know is wrong yeah exactly 70 percent of all the stuff that's in my brain is just knowing void. thanks Stephen. my master's was really worth it <laughs> well i think the sm100 is a fantastic product and uh i can't wait to see that go through its evolution so um yeah, thank you very much. You, you asked some great questions. You really made me think. And uh, I, I really uh, appreciate the time and um, can't wait to, uh, to do another episode with you, Francesca. Yeah, Ralph, thank you so much for your time and I look forward to it too. Thanks so much for your insight as well. All the best. Thank you. Bye.